0: In just a second. Yeah, so um yeah, just start speaking into the microphone.
1: Okay. Anything particular uh that I should say?
0: No, what uh yeah, whatever you're comfortable
1: with. Right, okay. Oh, so do we do testing one, two, three? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, testing,
0: testing one, two, three. Yes,
1: okay. All right, that sounds good. Okay, yeah. excellent. I can hear you loud and clear.
0: Perfect, perfect. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the punk rock. Barbershop. I am your host, Michael Robertson Reed. And on the Punk Rock Barbershop, and at the Punk Rock Barbershop, and in the Punk Rock Barbershop, we have black artists and black creatives talking about their origin stories, their life's journey, their career trajectory, with a particular focus on the white artists that have influenced them and how all of those elements are manifesting in the person they are today. And we have a very uh, special and unique guest with us in the studio today. So can you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, My name is Eugene Reed, and I have the distinct pleasure of being Michael Robertson Reed's father.
0: Yes, you do. So you, you are my dad. And um, so, you know, usually I, uh, I interview people that are not related to me, but uh, for the last couple of sessions, so interviewed my brother Gene a couple of days ago. Now I've got my dad in, in the studio. Uh, so yeah, it's great to have you here, Dad. Well,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent.
0: So um, yeah, so let's dive right in. And this will be, I mentioned this to Gene, some of this will be quite interesting because some of these things I know, uh, and then I'm sure there will be some things about your life that I don't know. Um, So
1: tell the good people that are listening to this, where were you born? I was born in Chicago, Illinois, on October 20th,
0: 1942. Okay. So when you were coming up in chicago what like what was that like what was the environment what did you do for fun what what was life like for a a youngster in chicago in the 40s and 50s
1: well it was uh very very interesting uh i grew up on the west side of chicago um and the city is actually divided into um, the south side, the north side, and the west side. Um, there is no east side of Chicago because that is bordered on Lake Michigan. Right, yeah. Um, so um, as I mentioned, I grew up on the, the west side of Chicago and um, uh, in a predominantly African-American and Jewish community. Um, and went to school with uh, African-American and, and Jewish kids. Um, there were a lot of uh, merchants, uh, store owners, retailers, things like that, uh, on the west side of Chicago. And in the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s, I will say, there was um, an, a very interesting alliance, uh, you might say, between the Jewish and the African American communities. Um, not only uh, in politics, but also in, in terms of culture and, and just socio-economics. Uh, so the, the two communities were really quite, uh, quite entwined mm. uh, throughout that uh, period
0: so so i i find that super interesting um you know one just because of the fact that chicago's been kind of notorious for being one of the most segregated or the most segregated cities in america um but the you know but but you said that there there was a noticeable jewish community on the west side at that yes, time yes yes mm-hmm. as as yeah. far as you can tell i mean uh do you have any sense of like what the percentage breakdown was, whether it was like eighty percent African American, twenty percent Jewish, or seventy thirty?
1: Uh, it was probably probably more like seventy thirty. Okay, um, on the far uh, west side, mm-hmm. as you as you moved out uh, west of uh, the downtown area, which was referred to as the Loop. Okay, um, and and I think partly. That, that derived from the fact that in the 40s, 50s, and on into the 60s, um, the, the Jewish community was still struggling to find their way. Sure. Um, just like the African American mm-hmm. uh, community was. Um, Chicago traditionally had been heavily Irish Catholic, um, um, Italian uh, Polish Hungarian a number of mm-hmm. uh, East European sure. um, communities and as I mentioned they were all uh, Catholic mm-hmm. so the the Jewish community was was definitely in a minority okay. uh, situation and that that may have been what contributed to the um the the joining or the um the affinity uh for the African American community mm-hmm. on the part of uh Jews in Chicago. Yeah, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense.
0: I mean and uh I mean did you have any uh did you have a a fair number of Jewish friends growing up or or like what was that dynamic?
1: Yeah, in early early Elementary school years, uh, I I can remember. Um, Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. Um, Later on, we moved to a different neighborhood, a different part of the city, Mm -hmm. still on the west side. Um, But that was probably more like uh, 90% African-American, probably 10% Jewish. Okay. Yeah
0: um and so so it was you and your older brother Lionel and your mom and dad um so so grandma obviously uh yeah you know she was your your mom my grandma yes, yes. uh Roberta and then your your dad Samuel yes uh, so um so what was the well so what did what did granddad Sam do for work
1: he uh from my earliest years that I can remember He initially worked uh, at the Fulton Fish Market uh, because Chicago had the distinction of being a Midwestern city and there was a lot of, um, um, there was a stockyards there, there was a meatpacking industry, there was a huge fishing um, industry. Um, because it was right there on Lake Michigan. And being situated in the middle of the country, a lot of that food came into into Chicago. So for uh, oh probably a good 10 or perhaps even 15 years, um, I can remember my dad worked at the uh, Fulton Fish Market. Okay. Uh, and we... Um, Actually, uh, my brother and I went to, down to the fish market, like if he worked a half a day on Mm -hmm. Saturday, um, we could, we would go down there and just, you know, watch the the, uh, men working and chopping up the fish and sorting it. And, and they, they had fish in these huge, like 500 gallon oak barrels, Mm -hmm. wooden barrels, something like that, um. And uh, it, was, it was hard work. It was, it was re- really hard work. But uh, my dad never, you know, shied away from it. And it was, you know, it was a way to earn a good sure, living. Sure, yeah. Yes. And uh, I think it, it, it was also very prosperous from the standpoint of Chicago being um, such a heavily um, Catholic, City, that there was a huge demand for fish. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which you know turned out to be a very you know good thing. Yes. So, <laughs> in terms of you know economics, sure, and, and sure, steady employment. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And w- what did Grandma do for uh, for work?
1: Grandma um, started to work um, part time. This in the mid fifties, I would say. Um, And she went to work for a company called Allied Radio Corporation in Chicago, which was a. It started out as a very small, mail order, radio. Supply, um, uh, distributor, and it was strictly mail order, and it was um, it was started by uh, two brothers. who also happened to be Jewish, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, um, they actually built it into a, a, a huge corporation, um, and um, uh, they built a, a a big facility on still on the west side of Chicago, and they were a, a big employer. Um, And they did shipping, I mean, just all over the world. Um, And um, my mother worked in the accounting department and accounts payable. And she started it, like I said, part-time as a file clerk. Okay. And she um, eventually became uh, the supervisor of accounts payable. Oh, very nice. Yeah, um, which was, I mean, just a, a huge... Progression mm-hmm. from the time that she went there, and this is up through the nineteen, the mid nineteen sixties, I would say. Um, so, uh, and when she eventually left there, she was actually working in uh, personnel, as it was referred to in those days. Okay. Now it's
0: it's human resources. Correct. Yeah.
1: Correct. Um, but this this company. Was very, very unique in that it uh, it was situated on the west side of Chicago, and the the majority of the workforce there was African American. So they they actually they employed people right in the neighborhood, in okay. the, yeah. the community. I should say not just the neighborhood, um, but it it turned out to be such a uh, a successful enterprise, Mm -hmm. that um, they were eventually bought by the Tandy Corporation, um, which you may or may not know, um, is Radio Shack. Oh, I did not know that. And the reason the Tandy Corporation acquired Allied Radio was because they were giving them so much competition. Mm, okay, um, makes sense. So yeah, they buy had an, out the competition. They had an ulterior uh, ulterior motive. But the company was uh it was it was v- really interesting um um for uh you know my mother to to work there as long as she did. And she knew the 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 president and the chairman, she knew them personally. Wow. because they they started like, I think like 1953 or something like that. In just a little small um, maybe a, a thousand square foot uh, of office space, mm-hmm. or you know perhaps even less than that um, and uh, I even worked there when I was in my senior year in high school. Uh, I worked down in the shipping department and uh, and I also continued to work there even after I went away to college, okay. Because I would come home on the weekends and I'd work like Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. and then uh, go back to uh, school.
0: So, what would you say? What would you say your family's uh, socioeconomic status was?
1: I would describe it as I would say lower middle class. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And within the West Side community. Um, was it was there a lot of diversity as far as socioeconomic class, or was it all kind of lower middle class, or was it like some people who were very poor and not even two pennies to put together, some who would be described as like working poor, and then maybe even some like middle class?
1: Yes, yeah, it was it was quite diverse within that that um, strata um, because I can remember kids, you know, in. You know, in elementary school who were um, not that well off, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have uh, money for lunch um, or or uh, if we would, you know, like during summertime when we were out of school um, and you're out playing and, you yeah. you know, you go to get, you know, um, soft drinks or, mm-hmm. you know, candy and ice cream and things like that. Um they, you know, they weren't able to participate right. in some, you know, in some of that. And sometimes we weren't either. Right. You know, so, um, but there, and there were some who were uh, quite well off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And did you have any interaction with the South Side of Chicago or, or did the West Side, did the West Side folks stay on the West Side?
1: Yeah, the, um, that was kind of an interesting dynamic because, the South Side folks stayed on the South Side, mm-hmm. and the West Side folks stayed on the, on the West Side. I didn't have any interaction with kids from the South Side, really until I went away to college. Okay. Um, because um, I went to Northern Illinois University uh, first, um, and it was about 60 miles northwest of chicago so there were a lot of kids there from chicago mm-hmm. you know um and that was really the first time i started you know to have interaction with kids from high schools uh, on the south side hyde park uh, hirsch oh, wendell phillips i think dunbar high mm-hmm. school um and there was a um, there was a um I don't quite know how to describe it, but there was a, there was sort of a feeling um, that uh, the kids from s- some of the high schools on the south side mm-hmm. um, that they were better, you know, the okay, yeah. kids from the west side. Yeah, and this this may go back way back into the '30s and '40s, uh, the time of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of um, the the African Americans who lived on the west side um, migrated from Alabama and Louisiana and Tennessee kind of up the Mississippi mm-hmm. River, you know, if you picture that yeah, and they tended to settle on the west side. Um, the African Americans who, wound up on the south side i i think were from like kentucky and, and georgia okay. and maybe florida mm-hmm. and stuff like that um and so there was a even within the greater context of the african american uh presence mm-hmm. in chicago there were there were some cultural sure cultural yeah. differences um the um so much of the 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 blues music that um, originated in Chicago uh, came from musicians who lived on the West Side. Okay. Okay. Because they were from, like I said, Mississippi mm-hmm. and Louisiana and the Delta yeah. and things like that. Um, and and the, the you didn't find as, as as much of a of a presence in in Clubs and things like that on the south side with a blues flavor. Okay. They were, um, I'll say, more sophisticated. Sure, sure. If you will. Yeah. Um, and they leaned more toward nightclubs, um, which presented jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Duke Ellington, mm-hmm. Count Basie. Sure, there. sure. Um, as opposed to on the West side, uh, the African Americans, uh, listen to muddy waters Mm -hmm. and BB King, you know? So, so I find that
0: very interesting because I mean, you, I mean, you're really a jazz guy. Yes. Uh, you know, I, um, you, you know of blues musicians, but if there was a blues record that was played in our house when I was growing up, I certainly don't remember it. I, I pretty much, uh, You know, I feel like the, you know, the predominant music that you listen to is jazz. So how did, being a West Side kid, how did you get into jazz?
1: Um, I had the opportunity to work uh, in a barber shop when I was probably 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. Um, and, um... The, the, it wasn't a traditional barber shop because the fellow who uh, owned it primarily um, processed men's hair. Okay. In the in sense, like I said, mm-hmm. this is the fifties yeah. and sixties. Um, so it was a it was a pretty hip clientele mm-hmm. that came in there. Um, in fact. <laughs> If somebody came in for a haircut, you know he would cut their hair, but you know he um, he wouldn't do that good a job. So it was like he was kind of discouraging <laughs> sure, them from sure. coming back. Yeah, um, simple economics. The mm-hmm. a haircut in the fifties was I don't know a dollar fifty, right? Something like that. Excuse me, dollar twenty five. Whereas the the men's the who got their hair processed that was like five six okay. seven dollars. $7. So it so it was
0: more lucrative for for them to get their hair processed. Yeah. Than, oh, yeah, absolutely. For the barber. Yeah, for the, the guy barber who owned yeah. the
1: shop, and and this 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 fellow was um, from Ohio, a little place called Middletown, Ohio, just right outside of Dayton. Okay. Um, but he had the. And like I said, this was probably 55, 1956, but um, he, his, one of his claims to fame was the fact that he went to high school uh, with a guy named Jerry Lucas, okay. who went on to play uh, basketball at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And not only did Jerry Lucas play basketball at Ohio State, but he played against Robert Oscar Robertson. Ah, okay, yeah. The Big O was at the University of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they were all like arch rivals. Arch rivals. Yeah, they okay. weren't in the same conference, yeah. but they were arch rivals. But anyway, getting back to your original question about the, the introduction to jazz. In this barbershop, this was back in the days when they still had jukeboxes. Sure, yeah. And so I'm like 14 years old, and I'm listening to uh, Charlie Parker... Sarah Vaughan, Billy Eckstein, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Lionel Hampton, um, uh, even Benny Goodman, mm-hmm. um, Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, and Tommy Dorsey played an alto saxophone, and he was he was almost as good as Charlie Parker. Okay, he really was. Really. Yeah, Jimmy Dorsey played trombone. Okay. He didn't he didn't really uh sound that good, but but Tommy Dorsey was great. He really was. Um so I worked after school uh like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm uh, Thursday and Friday after school and then all day Saturday. Okay, yeah. So I'm listening to like all this great music. Okay. Yeah. And um So then, when you know, I heard rhythm and blues, Mm -hmm. you know R and B, you know, just subconsciously, I said to myself, you know, there's no comparison, (laughs) right? Okay, (laughs) you know, um, and and so and this guy uh, who owned the barbershop took me to uh, a club in Chicago called the Blue Note, which was downtown in the Loop. Okay, and it was. it was run by a, a, an old guy, kind of almost a grandfatherly type, as I remember mm-hmm. him. And he had a section in the club that was set aside uh, where they didn't serve alcohol. Okay. So they had Sunday matinees, and people would bring kids mm, in there. Interesting. And, yeah. in fact, that was the first time... I saw Max Roach and Carmen wow, McRae. Wow. Okay. You know. And how old were you? I'm probably 15 Okay, years yeah. That,
0: old, so that that must have been like a really, just like your mind was blown a oh, little it was. bit. It yeah.
1: was. I mean, I can still picture it, you know, to mm-hmm. this day. Yeah. You know, it was, it was fantastic. And, um, and then I, um, I, I started um, subscribing to a, there was a Columbia Record Club, the, the the recording companies formed these clubs to market their records. Sure. Okay. And it was kind of like every month there was another album that came out and they would send you this card in the mail. And, of course, it was a marketing gimmick. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you didn't send the card back like within 10 days, they automatically ship you the record Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they sent you a bill. Right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I think I bought my first LP that way. And it was um, uh, Dave Brubeck uh, and J and K at Newport. Okay. A Newport Jazz Festival. One on need One group on each side. And then um, I think my my s- the second LP I bought. Um, was Sonny Rollins? Okay, yeah. Because we 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 had a great jazz station in in Chicago. It came on in the evening. This guy was like seven to well, we had a couple of great stations, but this one came on from like seven to nine in the evening. A guy named Dick Buckley, and he just played great, great mm-hmm. jazz. And I heard Sonny Rollins, and and I went out and bought it. It was an album called Way Out West, mm-hmm. and where. Um, because I think he had made a trip to the West Coast with Max Roach, you know, and he recorded with um, Shelley Mann and Ray mm-hmm. Brown. And um, it, was, it was a very unique album because it had, one of the tunes on there was I'm an Old Cow Hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and another was Wagon Wheels. Okay. Um, and it was, a, it was an interesting album for the time the late fifties because it didn't have a piano. Oh, okay. It was a yeah. Tenor yeah. saxophone, bass and drums, mm-hmm. you know, and that was just kind of, a a, a forerunner to, um, Sonny Rollins, uh, later groups. Yeah. You know, he dropped the piano. Uh, he didn't like the confines of core changes. Um, and after listening to him, then I, um, I think the third record I bought was Jerry Mulligan meets Thelonious Monk. Okay. And, you know, and by this time, I mean, my friends in high school thought I had gone off the deep mm-hmm. end. They, mm-hmm. they just thought I was just, you know, a hopeless case. Because yeah. I was hooked after... After I heard uh, Thelonious, well, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. really was.
0: And so, and were they d- like mostly listening to R and B and doo doop? Or oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It was Atlantic Records. I mean, they were listening to you know Ruth Brown, mm-hmm. um, the the Drifters. Yeah. Uh, this is this is even before Motown. Okay, so yeah. Motown really didn't come in. We didn't become aware of Motown in Chicago until like the early '60s. Gotcha. You know. 60 61 mm-hmm. 62 like that um but um uh and then I also heard an, it was a another guy on the radio um during the daytime a guy named Daddy O'Daly okay and uh <laughs> he was on the south side you know and he's African American and he was very hip really yeah. hip i think his i think his as I recall, his first name was Holmes. Okay. You know, um, and uh, and he was he was he was very hip, like I say, and he played great. great mm, I mm-hmm. mean, you could hear Miles and yeah. Parker and Diaz and all those guys on his uh, his station. Um, and um, uh, in fact, Miles even recorded and uh, uh, wrote a tune for him um, called "One for Daddy Yo. Okay. You know. Oh, nice. On An yeah. album with. Uh, Cannonball Adderley mm-hmm. yeah um, so by this time you know like 15 16 years old I was you know going off to college because I, I managed to graduate from high school when I was 16 years yeah,
0: old. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted uh, that to be stated for the record. That's that's pretty impressive. I mean, you went to college at a, at a fairly young age.
1: Yes, I did, and I went away to college. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It wasn't far. Like I said, it was about 60 miles outside the city.
0: But yeah, still, I mean, you know, there, there are some people who, even today, have a hard time physically leaving their parents' house and they're in their mid20s yeah that's yeah
1: <laughs> that's true that's true. Um, but i've I've always been a an adventurous type mm-hmm. you know like to travel my my parents, our parents install, instill excuse me instilled that in us yeah. you know from an early age. in fact, um, just to kind of backtrack to uh, earlier years you know growing up in Chicago. Uh, my brother and I used to go to Tennessee, down to Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville mm-hmm. in the summer. Yeah. Um, and uh, we would be down there for, oh, probably like a month, I guess, something like that. Yeah, about you know, four weeks. And, um, you know, and my dad always took his vacation the last two weeks in August. Okay. Yeah, as long as I can remember, he always did that. And uh, we would, my brother Lionel and I, we would go down on the train, the Illinois Central, and um, stay for the summer. And then my mom and dad would drive down and pick us up. You know?
0: and, and who would you stay with when you were down we in Tennessee? Would,
1: our, my great-grandfather had a farm um, just outside of Nashville. Okay. Um, and this is on my mother's side um and uh so we would go down there and work you know and on the farm mm-hmm. and all that and it was it was in some respects it was it was a it was great it was sure. fun to yeah. be out of the city and stuff but um uh it, it was also it could be trying too i mean i didn't i was young, so mm-hmm. I probably didn't realize the full dynamics mm-hmm. that going on right but I do recall um hearing my you know, my parents and uncles and aunts say that my great grandfather was this was his second wife. Okay. And um and of course we were children and grandchildren from the first wife. Right. Okay. So mm, mm-hmm. it really wasn't any love lost. There. Right. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, so, um, but it was great, and and uh, one th- neat thing about it was we got a chance, we got out of the city, Yeah, you know, and, uh, I mean, because, I mean, you're in uh, the west side of Chicago, even the south side of Chicago, it's, you know, concrete, mm-hmm. you know, yes, and yeah. you don't have many trees and parks and stuff, so to be able to go, you know, out in the country, I mean, it was great, it yeah. was wholesome, I mean. You know, people like the neighbors. You know, I mean, they, you know, they thought like we were rich, right? You sure. Know? I mean, yeah. we're going on vacation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay? Um, and year after year yeah. after year, yeah. you know. Um, so, like I say, from a from an early age, I I was always interested in, you know, in traveling. Yes. Yeah. You know, so when I had a you know chance after I graduated from high school, I mean, I didn't I didn't think twice about right. going away to college. Right. Yeah. Yes.
0: So, um, so something that uh, you know I want to explore for maybe about fifteen minutes, uh, and then do a little bit of a pivot is talk a bit about your career. Um, you know, so if if i if I'm understanding things correctly, you worked in finance. Am am I? Yes. Roughly correct, and uh, so w- so what would you say? Uh, was your job for for the duration of your career
1: working in um, uh, with Citibank and various uh, subsidiaries, various uh, corporations under the Citicorp umbrella? Okay, uh, in finance and financial management, financial reporting. Um, I never, I never worked. In Citibank itself. I never worked in a bank bank. Yeah. Um, I had the advantage of uh, working in, like, technology Mm -hmm. subsidiaries, telecommunication subsidiaries, which were a lot more interesting. Gotcha. You know, I mean, I'm not a techie. Right. um, But it was was just stimulating, Mm -hmm. if you will, being around those guys. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know. So, what was your major in college?
1: I started off majoring in accounting. Okay. All right. And I had the good fortune um, to, if if you can look at it this way, if you can believe this, I had the good fortune to actually flunk out um, after about two years. Okay. Okay. And I came back uh, to Chicago to work and, mm-hmm. you know, save money um, and go to junior college. Okay. Okay. Um, and I, I wound up getting a job through the State Unemployment Commission. Okay. Um, which, you know, <laughs> back in the 60s, Um you could actually go to the unemployment commission and they had job listings. Mm. They had job wow, postings yeah. and they would send you out yeah. on them, you know. Um, and um, there was this one um, position with a company called the Borden Milk and Ice Cream Company, which was huge um, in the Midwest, yeah. okay. And uh, it was at a division headquarters in a regional headquarters on the west side of Chicago also uh and actually fairly close to where um my uncle Ray lived okay it was yeah right about six blocks yeah. something like that uh so I wound up getting the job and the job was um distributing mail in the office mm-hmm. um and, you know, I had to wear a suit and tie and, you know, all that. Um, but um, it was basically, it was primarily an, a, the accounting office for the, the region because um, one of their big accounts was <laughs> the Chicago school system. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. that's, I mean, you know, you can sell a lot of milk. Yes, you know, yes, you <laughs> can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to schools, okay, in a city the mm-hmm. size of Chicago, okay. Um and I'm sure there was some politics yeah. involved in, in that. There always <laughs> is. Yeah. Especially in a city like mm-hmm. Chicago, you know, which is very political. All right. Um but the, the reason I say I, I had the good fortune to uh to work on that in that job is because for one, um it showed me what an accounting Office environment mm-hmm. was like, yeah, okay, and i i I saw that it was a lot of nuts and bolts mm-hmm. work, yeah, okay, and dealing with you know dollars and yeah. cents. I mean, down to the penny, and you know, as a re- and I worked there for two years, mm. okay, um, and about. I guess after the first year, a job opened up in the accounting department. So I got promoted out there, and I was keeping track of fixed assets, mm-hmm. equipment. Yeah. But through this, throughout this period, I realized that I didn't want to be an accounting sure. manager. Sure, yeah. Okay, because yeah. it was just too confining. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but the other thing that was really nice about it, in fact, it was great, was the just the exposure i got to the corporate environment mm-hmm. yeah. because they actually had um, officers they had a a chairman and a president and probably four or five vice presidents there in yeah. the building and you know i would you know interact with those guys you know periodically mm-hmm you know, they'd come in, you know, to pick up their mail and do things, and they'd, you know, just strike up conversations and and whatnot, you know. Um, So, um, uh, that was really beneficial in in my development, Mm -hmm. okay? And then I also kind of struck up a relationship with a guy who was, uh, like, the director of public relations. And... One summer, uh, I guess after I'd been there a year, I had you know two weeks vacation. So I happened to mention to him that a friend of uh, and my and I were going out to New York mm-hmm. to because uh, uh, a f- high school buddy of ours uh, had moved out there, an aspiring um, trumpet player mm-hmm. um, who was you know moved to New York yeah. and he was going to go to the Manhattan School of Music yeah. and all this, you know. Um, and and this guy said, um, this fellow said, uh, well yeah, I could uh you know, I could get you uh, I can get you a tour, you know, of the, the headquarters, the corporate office on okay. Madison yeah. Avenue, you know, three fifty mm-hmm. and I used to send mail there all the time. Right. Yeah. Three fifty Madison Avenue. It was like two buildings over from mm-hmm. Brooks Brothers. Yeah, you know. Um and I said, Oh, that would be great. Um so yeah, so he set all that up. Um and, you know, one day I, you know, went into and min- went down to Midtown and um, you know, met someone and introduced myself and, you know, this guy, you know, gave me a tour nice the corporate yeah. office, you know. Um and I mean this was like I say, this is probably nineteen sixty four. Mhm. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh so this is like I mean literally unheard of right you know right. for you know young african americans mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so uh, but that made a, a big impression on me and then after 2 years um i uh i went uh, back to school because i um uh i was i was working and and uh i bought a a used Porsche Mm, mm -hmm. and and (laughs) I bought a new mg and you know and my mom and dad said oh and I was going to uh, Northwestern University at night okay I was still taking classes I was still in school and uh because the company actually reimbursed me 100% tuition and books Okay. okay oh nice it was great yeah so and I was you know taking classes there and everything. And, uh, my parents said, well, you know, this is great. You know, you're going to, you know, have a thousand credits and, mm-hmm. no, degree. and no degree. So, so <laughs> you know, you need to go back mm-hmm. and finish full time. And then, uh, this friend of mine who I'd met, uh, as a freshman at Northern this fellow Lamont Bell, uh, he was at Southern Illinois university and, um, uh, I went down to visit him, and he was telling me how much he liked it, you know, and everything. Um, And so I wound up going to um, Southern Illinois uh, and graduated. You know, I was only there a year, and I graduated. Um, And something really interesting occurred after graduation. Um, I, I took a test for the federal government. It was called the... Federal Service Entrance Exam, okay. the FSEE, and uh, it was for a whole different, a litany of positions, and one of them was with the Social Security Administration, one was with the Treasury Department, and I actually interviewed with someone at the Treasury Department, Okay. I think in on campus, yeah, I think it was on campus, and he was describing it to me, and, you know, you'd be doing, you know, work on tax cases and this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but he said also since we're part of the Treasury Department, you know, um, you know, like if the president comes to town, you know, you might, you know, be called upon to, you know, do security right. work yeah. and all that, and, you know, I was, you know, I got to think, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah. Because
0: the, the Secret Service used to be through the Treasury Department. For, yes, that's right. I mean, mm-hmm. up until mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know if they, I, I guess, are they a part of Homeland Security now? I think so. I yeah, guess. I mean, but but really, like, up, I guess, maybe until Homeland Security was started. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the yeah, the, the, the that was something I always found interesting. And I think even to this day, the Secret Service still does, there's still a fair amount of work that they do around, um, you know, uh, Prosecuting or uh, investigating counterfeit currency yes, circulating yeah. around the country, yeah. So I, I think that's something that uh, like a lot of people don't really know is that if if you if you work for the Treasury Department, like a lot of those people, like they're required to carry a, a firearm. Correct. And that's I right. I yes. think the um uh the you know Elliot Ness and the and the you know and that whole crew and the untouchables, I think they were technically Treasury Department, yeah, they were employees that's right well, yeah mm-hmm. which i've i I never really picked that up until I saw the movie and you know and they would say, oh you know i'm you know I'm Lieutenant Ness or detective Ness mm-hmm. from the Treasury Department yes okay yeah,
1: exactly exactly yeah so i um I didn't think I wanted you know to do that as a career uh, but also this same exam um uh, put you in line for positions with the Social Security Administration, mm-hmm. okay, and and then I I also had an interview on campus with General Motors, mm-hmm. um, and they were interested in me. Uh, so and I I wanted to pursue that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, GM was you know the biggest automaker, mm-hmm. you know, in the world. You know, this like I said, 1965. Um, even after the Corvair, you Mm -hmm. know, um, in fact, uh, my dad had a Corvair. (laughs) So
0: what, what's a, what's a Corvair?
1: It was a, it was a subcompact car. Okay. Interesting. Rear mounted engine. Mm. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, um it ran into Ralph Nader.
0: Ah, uh, okay. okay. Now I, I know of this yes. now. Yes. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. And there was some design flaws. Sure. Sure. And it was unsafe. And in fact, I think that was the name of his book. Mm-hmm. Unsafe at any speed. Yes, it was. It, it was, was like I say, rear mounted engine. Okay.
0: So, so, th- so this, this is the car that really made the, the Ralph Nader that we know today. Exactly. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yeah. He began his crusade. and mm-hmm. Never stopped. Um, but interestingly enough, um, it was a great concept. Sure. Okay. Sure. Which had Detroit pursued it, mm-hmm. um, they may very well have fended off the Japanese. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't. They mm-hmm. gave up on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that left that market wide open. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you know the rest is history. Yes. Um. So, so, anyway, I was, I was um, uh, being recruited by General Motors as well, and their parts division was uh, headquartered in a town called Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan,
2: the, yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: So they sent me an airline ticket. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, first time I'd ever flown mm. on a plane. They sent me an airline ticket. I flew out of Midway Airport on a little two-engine prop plane. Went up there, spent a whole day, you know, and I had interviews and, you know, this and that. And they were really interested. They wanted, you know, because they wanted to start, you know, diversifying management and, you know, professional staff. And, you know, and I was, you know, thinking, you know, it's a little small town. Right. And, you know, I grew up in Chicago. You're coming from a big city. Yeah. You know, and I'm wondering, you know, there probably aren't any jazz clubs here. Right, right. And whatnot. So I didn't take the job. Mm-hmm. But as a result of going on that interview, I missed, like the first week, I missed the start of the training class for the Social Security Administration, okay? And so when I get back, you know, and I call the the, uh, office and talk to him, you know, the guy tells me to come in to his office. He's like the manager or the director or something, and he will... Give me like a week's training to bring me up to speed with the rest mm-hmm. of the class. Yeah. So I go down to the office there um, yeah, near the loop, and you know he's going through all this, you know the the, the lingo and mm-hmm. everything and whatnot. And I'm sitting there in his office, and I'm looking out at the and the office is huge. Yeah. Okay and there are all these rows and rows Mm, of desks, mm -hmm. okay? And people are just working away because it's, I mean, there's no computers, everything, and they got file folders like this high, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm looking out at that and I'm thinking, whoa, man, I, Yeah, that's
0: That's not what you want to be a part of. (laughs) That's not for me, that's
1: not for me. so I, you know, I, after a week, I, I told him, I said, it's, it, it's not really the position for yeah. me. You know, thanks, but, but no thanks. Um, and um, when, when, I, when I went back to school, when I went to Southern Illinois University, I changed my major from accounting to financial management. Okay. Okay. Because I thought that would give me a broader scope. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it would be less, you know, confined, yeah. less restrictive even just from the resume standpoint, you know. And I managed to um, get a job, I guess it probably took me another, about a month or so, maybe a couple of months, um, with IBM Mm. Mm -hmm. in Chicago. And And actually I was on my way back from another interview in the morning and I was walking up Michigan Avenue, I was on South Michigan Avenue, uh, and I was coming back up, and I saw this IBM building, and you could recognize it because they they had the windows on the front of the building on Michigan Avenue. The windows were staggered; they looked like a IBM punch card. Oh, okay. Oh, that's but that's that was, that's pretty close. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty. You know, pretty cool. Yeah. And I went in, um, and this woman was. Uh, at the receptionist desk, and I, you know, said I, you know, like to fill out an application, mm-hmm. and um, and she was. She was probably in her. I'm going to say 60s, late 50s, maybe early 60s, something like that. You know, very well dressed, mm-hmm. very, you know, composed, very professional, yeah. you know, very IBM yeah. looking. And she said, uh, "Well, we don't, you know, really." Uh, take applicants who walk in yeah. off the street, you know. And, uh, and she asked me, she says, uh, you know, how did you, you know, happen to come here? How did you happen to come into the IBM yeah. office? And, and I told her that when, you know, I worked for the Borden Milk and Ice mm-hmm. Cream Company, um, they installed an IBM computer. Uh, in like 1964, I think it was, and this was, you know, like only the second generation. Sure, I think it was like the 1400 series mainframe, mm-hmm. you know, and and I, you know, told her how, you know, that just, you know, revolutionized the uh, the uh, accounting system there yeah. and the payroll and the inventory system, you know, because um, I kind of had her interest mm-hmm. at this point, yeah, you know um and and uh and I you know I so I said and, you know it seems like you know computers are becoming you know the wave of the mm-hmm. future okay in the business world yeah. and 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 you know and then I said and when I think of computers you know I said I just naturally think of IBM it's being mm-hmm. the biggest yeah. and the best okay she gets this big smile mm-hmm. on her face. Yeah. Right.
0: Now, now you're speaking her language. Right, yeah. okay.
1: She reaches down into the drawer in the desk, pulls out an application, mm-hmm. and has me fill it out. And, and, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And, and um, um turns out she was the director of personnel. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Filling in for the receptionist.
0: Oh, interesting. Who was at lunch. Wow. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you talk about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, it's an an amazing stroke of luck. Yeah, Yeah. it
1: was, it it was a blessing. Mm -hmm. It really was little, you know, did I know at the time? Um, so I, I come back, you know, like a week later for the interview and, um, uh, I was, you know, interviewed by the accounting manager. And, you know, he asked, you know, we're talking and he asked me how, you know, when I came in and, you know, who did I see and whatnot. And I, you know, I told him, you know, about the woman who was the receptionist, you know, and described how she looked, you know. And he said, oh, he said that was, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. You know, he said she's the head of personnel, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. He said he said and you know, he said, Nobody gets past her. Wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so uh, they wound up hiring me, you know, and so I worked for IBM for six months. Okay. Exactly six months. And then I was drafted and in, into the army because right. I was single. Yes. Um and the Vietnam was Vietnam War was right. in full swing mm-hmm. and I think I was twenty four yeah twenty three something like that, years old, so you know um my student deferment had expired yeah. upon graduation, so I was classified you were one a mm-hmm. you know, and that was you got your greetings from Uncle Yeah. Sam, yes
0: and, yeah. yeah yeah and you were you were over in vietnam for a was it just a single year is that yeah, how it worked one year. out yeah. yeah that's what the tour of duty yeah.
1: was one year um and uh
0: was it was it extremely terrifying when you got your your draft notice? I mean, I imagine it, it would be. It was. Yeah. Yes,
1: but the interesting thing about it, and so was basic training. I mean, yeah. I didn't know what to expect. You know, yeah. when I got there. You know, you see movies and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But I had the good fortune to take basic training um, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Okay, which is. Where the 101st Airborne Paratrooper Division was based. So they had just converted it to basic training. Um, And I was in like the first class. Mm -hmm. So the drill instructors were not, they weren't hardcore. Okay. You know, it wasn't anything like, you know, what you saw in the movies. Right, right. You know, because they were. They were learning all sure sure so that was kind of that was good okay that was that was actually yeah good. um and then for my what they call advanced individual training I think AIT I went to Fort Gordon Georgia okay which is near Augusta okay and that's where I went to signal school mm-hmm. um, to be a communication specialist yeah
0: so you were in the signal corps correct Mm -hmm. so uh, what was i mean i imagine that there's not necessarily a typical day in the army and especially during active combat but so but like what what was what was your your overall responsibilities in the signal corps
1: well we're sending and receiving all messages all sorts of messages you know and i was in the what they call a headquarters company um and so there was, you know, like communications, there was personnel, there was finance, there was other stuff. Mm-hmm. So we were always we were in a compound. Okay. You know, we weren't out in the field, right. which was good. Right. Um and that was for my first six months mm-hmm. and I was in a uh a town called or right outside of a town called Natrang. Mm-hmm. Um which was right on the South China Sea mm. and it was midway through the country. If you if you just think of Vietnam South Vietnam mm-hmm. in the shape of California, mm-hmm. we would have been probably somewhere around like maybe Santa Barbara. Okay. Something yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Which was relatively safe. Mm-hmm. The north and the south were, you know, where all the fighting took yeah. place. And in fact inland also. Um, If you think of like, you know, Fresno and Bakersfield, that was very dangerous because you started getting over to Laos Mm -hmm. and Cambodia, Cambodia. stuff like that, yeah. So that was my first six months. My second six months was completely the opposite Okay, because the Army started to take over um, operations way up north Mm. from the Marine Corps. And so they needed communication, so we got shipped out. Okay. Um, well, we didn't get shipped out directly because after we packed everything up and we were all set to go on these ships to go up to Da Nang, uh, the Tet Offensive broke mm. out. So probably for, I don't know, three or four weeks, you know, we were, you know, just... Like in the same clothes right. and eating sea rations yeah. out of cans and wow. all that. Yeah. You know, because we couldn't get out, mm-hmm. you know. And that was really the first time that area had been attacked. Yeah. It was. And then we get up to Da Nang. We go up there by what they call these LSTs, which are these, they're like World War II boats. And, you know, the front opens up mm-hmm. and you drive. Oh, you know, right. Yeah. Trucks. Yeah. And yeah. Everything inside. So, you know, I... I tell everyone that was my first cruise.
2: Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> you
0: know? N- not the ideal cruise, but yeah, it was <laughs> right. that that was your first cruise. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we get to Da Nang, and then and the Tet Offensive is still going yeah. on, and so we're 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 stuck there for probably another three or four weeks mm. before we could actually go up, up to where we were Phu Bai, I think it was mm-hmm. called, where we were going to be, um, and. And the really, the interesting part about that, just to show you what a small world it is, um, I met a guy there, because I was writing, you know, home and whatnot, and Grandma had told me that a friend of hers' son was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And I knew this kid, because we grew up, like, across the street yeah. from each other. His dad and my dad were good friends. And so I met this, this kid that in the Marine Corps uh, at this base where we were going mm, to. Mm-hmm. They were there already. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, and this is what, five thousand miles yeah. away or something yeah. like that, you know, which is yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I was there my second six months and uh um and that was a lot more that was a lot more dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, and also a lot more primitive. Right. Um uh, we were sleeping on cots, you know, and, and, uh, but not, not, I mean, you had your sleeping bag. Sure. On yeah. The cot. And, uh, um, the showers were, you know, a 10,000 gallon tank mm-hmm. in the chain. Yeah. You just pull on it and the water comes yeah. down. So needless to say, the water wasn't heated. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Not uh, at all. So that, uh, that, that, you know, that really makes you appreciate, um, uh, uh, you know the world that mm-hmm. we live in. Yes, yeah. most definitely, it it most definitely. Yeah. Um, the another really interesting facet of going to Vietnam was the fact that that was the first time I went to California. Okay. Because this friend of mine, Lamont, he would he had gone out after graduating from college and he was in San Francisco so when when I went out I was going uh, to be processed through the Oakland Army Mm -hmm. Terminal so when I got out there I contacted him and uh, I was there actually for about five or six days or so maybe a little over a week maybe more Um, so uh, after you know five o'clock six o'clock in the evening Mm -hmm. we would get off and so I would come over to San Francisco and he and I would go up, we'd go to the jazz clubs, mm, and nice. just run yeah. around and everything. And, and of course being 1965, Haight-Ashbury was yeah. in, full, in bloom, full bloom, you know, yeah. and he only lived probably three or four blocks mm, mm-hmm. from the Haight, yeah. as they called it. Right. You know, um, because Haight-Ashbury was just a, like an interstate. Right. Yeah. It was the two streets. Yeah, And, uh, so, um, um, yeah, that was that was my first exposure to uh, to California. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then after my year uh, in Vietnam, I came back into Fort Lewis, Washington, um, which is right outside of Spokane, mm, right outside okay. of Seattle. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the airport is the SeaTac mm, Airport. Mm-hmm. So after I got processed in a couple of days, I you know, got a plane ticket, and I went back down, to, back San down Francisco, to San Francisco, you know, and we're having a great time, and and so finally, uh, oh, my mother calls up, because she had Lamont's phone number, mm, mm-hmm. and she calls up, you know, and says, you know, when are you coming home? Right, yeah, you know, and yeah. And I said, oh, I'll be home next <laughs> week, you know, but I was enjoying myself, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then I had, because... When you came back from Vietnam, you got 30 days leave. Okay. Right? Um, so, you know, I had I knew I had plenty of time. Uh, and then uh, I went to Fort Benning, which is near Columbus, Georgia. Okay, yeah. So I was there again in Georgia. And that's where I was discharged mm-hmm. from. And after I got out, uh, the Army—oh, um, actually— Backtrack just a second. Uh, About two months before I was discharged, I get a letter, or my mother gets a letter at home from IBM, Mm, mm -hmm. and she sends it to me. You know, and it says, you know, we see according to our records, it shows that you're, you know, uh, going to be discharged from the military in, you know, a couple of months, and we'd like, you know, to find out if you plan to come back to Mm -hmm. work Uh, because they had a policy. Then that said if you were in the military and you served um, in the U.S. Um, and you returned to work, you got a week's salary. Oh, okay, like if yeah. You, if you served outside of the U.S., you got two weeks out, mm, mm-hmm. you know, which is really great. Yeah. Um, but I had decided I was going to move out to New York. Okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, because mom had already, after we got out of school, mom mm-hmm. had gone back sure to New Jersey. So, um, I, uh, and I had a car, you know, so I just drove right up, you know, the East coast there. And, and then I, uh, I got a call or actually mom got a call at her house from a, f- a fellow who was my supervisor at IBM. Mm-hmm. And he said, um. Uh, you know, do you, you, know, you plan to come back to work? Or, and I, I said, well, no, I've decided to move out to the East Coast, yeah. you know, because I said I'm going to be getting married and, you know, want to be in New York. So he actually told me that um, I could go in to the IBM office in Manhattan mm, mm-hmm. in what they called uh, OPD, the Office Products Division. And, you know, he said, I'll set up an appointment there with you to interview with yeah. someone. And, uh, you know, I said, well, okay, I really appreciate that. But, you know, by this time, I had already been interviewing and I had accepted a job with Avon. I see. products Right, right. New York, yeah. You know, but I, you know, thanked him and mm-hmm. everything. And, and he said, okay, that's fine. He said, but, you know, if, if things don't work out, right. you, know, he yeah. said, you know, give me a call back, you know. Um, so I you know I, I had some some really good breaks yeah yeah you know, definitely just, to just beginning my mm-hmm, career
0: mm-hmm, absolutely yeah. very cool well yeah thank thank you for sharing that um so now i want to do a, a little bit of a transition um and delve a little deeper into some of your artistic influences some of the things that i you know i've noticed in the years growing up with you you know it's, and so something that i think is interesting is you know as I'm getting older now and you know I have a um, you know I have a son of my own now and just sort of thinking about well you know Mercer is really going to know me as his dad and he's only going to know at least in the beginning uh, one sort of facet of me but he isn't he isn't necessarily going to know the life I had before he was born and then you know at some point he'll learn about it and try to reconcile that so you know for for our relationship you know I think it's I think it's fair to say that you were a pretty um no nonsense strict dad I mean you weren't mean and you certainly you were a very loving person then and you are a very loving person now but you you were no nonsense you didn't really tolerate a lot of uh shenanigans from us you know i I would imagine because you wanted the best for for Gene and Terrence and I. Right. Um, You know, but of course, you know, I only really saw you as this guy who would go to, you know, your your dad. So you go to work and you wear a suit and tie and you're very serious and Mm -hmm. you're telling us not to do stuff. Um, But then there's this whole other side to you. Um, you know, which I didn't necessarily see. I mean, like, and why would I notice it? I mean, I'm eight years old and things like that. So, you know, so I was definitely aware that you were into jazz because, I mean, that was really the music that you mm-hmm. played pretty much exclusively. Yes. Um, yeah. But then right. there there were a couple of other things where at the time I didn't really notice them. But then looking back, I was like, huh, OK, like that's that's interesting. Like, you know, maybe... My dad and I have more in common than I think, you know, because, you know, at least for me, you know, I always and I think a lot of um, kids feel this way about their parents where it's like, oh, they're so different. They don't get me. We have nothing in common. They don't know what it was like to be a kid. They're no fun. All of these things. But one of the first times I really remember um, seeing a side to you that I hadn't really seen before was I was about, yeah, I think I was 15 or 16. We were living in in Northern Virginia at this point, and I was starting to get into films. I was starting to get into science fiction, and I had remembered Gene had watched, Two thousand one, like I remember, you know, because Gene Mm -hmm. obviously was, you know, was very much into science fiction, and I was a bit too, you know, mostly Star Wars and Star Trek. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I was like really learning about films, and I had maybe, like, maybe I, I was taking a film class in high school. I can't remember, but you know, but I knew, I think, I knew that there was the two thousand and one film. I knew that there was the two thousand and ten film. Um, you know, there was that blockbuster video across the street from the apartments that we lived in in Reston. So, I, you know, I went there and I rented 2001 and I was really excited because I'm like, oh, it's going to be this awesome space movie like Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I watched it and it was not anything like that at all. And I just remember thinking like, like, what's going on? Like the first... 40 minutes is just monkeys and chimps running around and like fighting each other. Right. And you know, then this black slab shows up and then there someone's in space and then they land on the moon. There's another black slab and then, you know, Dave and the other guy are in space and Hal kills them. And Mm -hmm. it was, you know, super, super, super confusing. So I remember you got home from work and, you know, I think, we, you know, we were just talking and and I said, um, oh, yeah, like, you know, I watched 2001 and I remember you, you said, oh, well, isn't it really interesting? Because the monolith represents the evolution of humankind. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I'm like, oh, OK, there's something to this movie because, like, I yes. just didn't really get it. Uh-huh. So I didn't really pay attention that but i but i i would always quote that to people like you know whenever i would say like oh well you know in 2001 the the monolith represents this you know this next evolution of humanity but like you know looking back on it um you know i thought that was just like super super interesting because you know i mean kubrick is you know is kind of a a, you know it's not necessarily the most accessible director for people Uh to get into true true, and um you know there are I have not really found a lot of people really outside of the art school world that like really can like dive deep into Kubrick's mm-hmm. films. Yeah. You know, so you know, so I remember you talking about Kubrick. I remember um at a certain point re- when I was in my 20s and you had mentioned that you know Roman Polanski was you know was a big director that you were into and you like you know movies like Chinatown yes, things yeah. like that so so I'm I'm just kind of curious like like what were some of the the artistic like what was some of the art aside from jazz that you were into like like what were some of the other film directors and, and yeah. films that you were really into
1: well i would say um, uh, in addition to to Polanski uh, would be uh, Ingmar Berkman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I saw a couple of his films. Um, and uh, th- this would be like on trips to New York, yeah. too, by the way, because you did, we didn't get a lot of foreign films in Chicago. But a uh, couple of times when uh, I went to New York, um, uh, I stayed down in a village uh, and there were you know little small theaters yeah. around there, and there were you know various um, various you know French films, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and French directors. Uh, Truffaut yeah. was, was Francois Truffaut was a, you know another one. Um, a a, um, a movie I liked was A Man and a Woman. Mm. Um, um, was that was that a Truffaut yeah, film? Uh, okay. Yeah, Cuz uh, I think I
0: think the only I don't know yeah. if I've ever seen any Truffaut films. I think the the one uh that I definitely know of, I think the 400 Blows was oh. that Truffaut? Uh
1: no, I thought that was
0: good. Oh, that Bert- might be uh, Ber- I Ber-
1: thought that was Bernardo Bertolucci. Yeah, maybe, yes, maybe. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and then also um I think Truffaut did Day for Night. Okay. Um yeah there were there were several uh and they just kind of intrigued me uh i i guess that you know in my early 20s late teens early 20s um i i just had a, a an interest a key, pretty keen interest in things foreign mm-hmm. yeah um you know foreign cars yeah uh foreign you know films um even um, foreign clothing yes um
0: yeah i i feel uh, like you you are a fan of the of the Italian tailors and the Italian suits,
1: oh yeah, Italian and british mm-hmm.
0: yeah um and um'cause uh, so, so sidebar, not to interrupt, but i I remember that two things about uh about suits yeah cause, i mean you know you for, for for most of my time you wore you know you wore suits to work yes. really until I was in high school in the mid to late 90s when it seems like yeah everyone no one wore a, yeah. su- suits kind of went out of vogue and yeah. then and now you know no one wears a right. suit right. I well, feel like see, anymore
1: it, initially uh, it was the yeah it was the late 80s early 90s when business casual started. On Fridays, mm-hmm. okay, it was like yeah. dress down Friday, and then it just became the norm. It became every day. Yeah, fr- Friday
0: became Thursday, yeah. became came, became all five yeah. days.
1: Even though we were part of a bank, sure, you yeah. know, we 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 still, uh, you know, were casual because we didn't, unless you had you know some kind of customer contact, right. which in technology. And and um, telecommunications very seldom, yeah. You know, would that occur? Uh, so if we went to New York, and we were meeting with um, people at the bank, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like on Park Avenue yeah. and Wall Street, that kind of thing. You know, we'd wear suit right. and tie. But that was other than that, it yeah. was just it was casual. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So, but I still enjoyed um, wearing a suit and a tie like you know, going out, Mm -hmm. you know, on the weekend, you know, uh, going to, you know, a concert or, you know, restaurant or whatever. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, so uh, two things about Suits that will always stick out in my mind. One is you and mom were visiting, this is, you know, you were visiting me here in, in Philly uh, and this was around like 2011, 2010 and um, Pee Wee's Big Adventure the movie was on mm-hmm. and, oh, yes. you know, and I had, you know, that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Uh, so, you know, so we watched the whole thing and I remember you commented, you, you said, Oh, uh, Pee Wee Herman, he, he's wearing a, a continental cut. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the type of suit it is. And I, you know, I had never heard that before. So I was like, oh, so, you know, I was like, wow, like, you know, my dad, like really, he knows some stuff about suits. And then later for, um, for my wedding, Greg Silvesti was wearing a continental cut. Yes. and and he yeah. mentioned that you mentioned that to him. He yeah, he he said something like oh he's like, oh, your dad's really, really hip. Uh, um, or I think this was after the wedding, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Greg and I were talking a, a couple of months later oh, and yes. and yeah. and he was, and I said, oh, like you know, thanks for coming to the wedding. Uh, you know, you know, it's great to see you. And he, he goes, he's like, oh yeah, I, ha- I had a great time. He's like, you know, and and your dad was, you know, he loved my suit. He, you know, he just kept yeah, talking I to me. Him yeah, on yeah, it. yeah yes. he's, you know, he 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 said he really liked that I was wearing a continental cut. So mm-hmm. yeah. so you you made a, a great uh, impact on yeah. on Greg Silvesti. Oh, okay, that great, night.
1: great, thank you. So, And see that that design was was pioneered by the Italians. Mm-hmm. Okay, because they're you know. They're slender, mm-hmm. you know, um, most as opposed to like the British or the Germans, you know, who are, you know, guys eating meat and potatoes. Yeah. You know, they tend to be bigger and huskier, and the uh, and the, so the Italians and the French they really um, developed that, and and that's what it became known as in the '60s, you know, the continental. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and there were some American designers who came in later, but it was really the Italian. Uh, designers yeah. who who developed it, who uh, pioneered it. Yeah, interesting,
0: interesting. And some, um, so, do you remember? Um, you know, like so. Aside from uh, Kubrick and Bergman, what were who were some of the other directors or some of the other films that you were into at that time?
1: Um, I I probably don't remember the that uh, the, the directors quite as much um but um trying to think of some of the other films that uh that i i would uh, go to see um uh, well I was a uh, a, a big Steve McQueen fan. Oh, really? Also. Okay. Yes. Um,
0: so, um, and, so, aside, uh, and, the, know, really the only Steve McQueen bullet, movies I know. Yeah. I know bullet and I know the great escape. Yes. I feel like, I feel like the great escape, at least for my generation, like that, that's the one that everyone knows. Cause that, I mean that had, I think like Charles Bronson was it like there, there, yes. there were some, yeah. uh, some mm-hmm. other like significant people. Yeah.
1: Um, and then there was, uh, was it, I think he was in Papillon, wasn't he? In Papillon with Dustin Hoffman. Uh,
0: I see. I don't remember because I I only saw I saw five minutes of Papillon. Mm-hmm. It came on KTLA in oh. in California. Yes. I think I was like yeah. eight, and it kind of uh, freaked me out because they they showed someone getting beheaded with a oh. guillotine. Oh. So as soon as that happened, I just like I turned, oh, yeah. and I had no idea that um I didn't even know until a couple of maybe last year that it was based on a true story like you know Mm -hmm. it was based on the novel because they actually did a remake of Mm -hmm. it um it came out yeah i think it came out about a year ago it didn't really do that well Mm -hmm. uh but this guy his name is charlie hoonan i believe naomi will get very mad at me for butchering his name because he he was in a show called sons of anarchy about a like a motorcycle club mm-hmm. in oh, yes. California yeah, on right, FX, right. but yeah, but he he was he was in it. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, Frank and I tried to see it, but it was out of the theaters before mm-hmm. oh, yeah, before we could yeah. see it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm not sure if Steve McQueen was in Papillon. Right, right, okay, okay. okay but you were a Steve yeah. McQueen fan.
1: Yes, yeah, um, and because um, he he kind of represented a a, a, a different type of actor, you know, for those of us who were younger, you know, in the, in the sixties, you know, because I mean, we had, you know, we had been exposed to, we grew up with, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the classics, you know, you know, Henry Fonda and, you know, Gary Cooper and, you know, Cary Grant and guys like this. And, you know, McQueen was you know just kind of just a rebel. Right, yeah. Yeah, bit know?
0: bit more rugged, more more of the kind of anti-hero. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, and uh and that, you know, I I I I I liked that. Mm-hmm. I liked him, you know, cuz it was so you know, different from sure. from me. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that yeah, that's that, that's also kind of what I find interesting cuz I'm like you 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 seem like a very uh anti Steve McQueen guy yeah i mean like you're you're not really someone who i you know i wouldn't call you rugged you know yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's uh yeah that's not necessarily how you get down um and th- so and then something else that i'm wondering and this might just be like a total guess on my part uh so feel free to let me know if i'm completely wrong were you ed- in any way influenced by Bob Newhart so I, I have I have a Bob Newhart theory about oh. you so so am, am, am I correct in, in thinking that you were influenced by Bob Newhart or at least you know you had a certain amount of uh, or you know still have a certain amount of affection for him
1: Oh I definitely
0: do okay definitely do
1: uh, and the influence is probably you know more subconscious mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. than I'm aware of. You know, um, but um, just you know, just just observing him and and you know, knowing you know he because he I think he's from Chicago. Yes, also, yeah. You know, and and seeing his, his his style and his sense of humor. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's always appealed to me. Right, it, it, right. It really has you know like when you know he and I think it was Suzanne Plachet. Mm-hmm. You know, had the show. And uh, and it's like when periodically, uh, not even periodically, it's almost like once in a blue moon, he shows up on the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, you know, I like really perk up. Yes, you know, yeah. To me, that that's great. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that that that's something I definitely have noticed because I remember, you know, watching um, whichever show of. His yeah, I guess it was Newhart was the show with Suzanne Plachet that came on like in the eighties. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, I I kind of get them all confused. Yeah, because I guess the the Bob Newhart show was the one in the seventies. Newhart was the one in the eighties. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. He even had a very short-lived sitcom called The Bob Newhart Show, maybe in the early nineties, but I don't I don't really think it went anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, so I so I remember like watching some episodes at the house. I remember watching some episodes. At, you know, at grandma and grandpa's house, and then it was really um when he was on. Yeah, like you said, when he would be on The Big Bang Theory as <laughs> as Professor Proton, yes. and and I remember watching a couple of episodes with you and mom, and like definitely definitely noticing you seem to laugh a lot more when, mm, when he when was he, on there yes, yeah. and, and yeah. And you know, and then as I started to get to know you a bit and I thought about it, I'm like, okay, well like this kind of makes sense. Cause you know, like you're a bit of an understated guy. He's a bit of an understated guy. Like, you know, he has this really sort of like dry, subtle humor about him where he, he kind of plays the, jo- like he plays the jokes really, really, really straight. Mm-hmm. And then that's what makes them funny. Correct. Um, Correct. You know, like he, yeah. he doesn't, Big, broad humor for laughs. I mean, like it's, it, you know, it's it's pretty powerful. Um, yeah, and so then I'm I'm like, oh yeah, like that kind of reminds me of my dad because you know, you know, because you're someone who, you know, I mean, you definitely you know, clearly have your serious moments, but you have, you know, some very, very fun, you know, funny moments and and you know, I've I've seen you make like little subtle jokes that like I, you know, I don't really know like if people get, you know, and even sometimes, um, you know, in some in some very uh serious situations you've you've made some very funny jokes where I'm like, Oh, that's that's really funny. So yeah, at so at some point yeah, I actually you know, I was thinking I'm I'm like, I feel like Bob Newhart is like a pretty big influence on my dad like you said even if it's a subconscious thing yes. that you, you know you don't recognize and then when i learned about the bob newhart show from the 70s and i'm like oh it takes place in chicago yeah. and you know and he's you know like you know uh yeah you know he's kind of got like this hip apartment so yeah okay yeah, so well, right. yeah so it's it's good to know that my uh my theories are not mm. wildly oh no no no, no not they, wildly off. Right on yes <laughs> excellent excellent yeah um and there's, uh, there's just a couple more things that I wanted to, to cover with you. Um, you know, you, you are very into jazz, and, um, you know, Miles Davis is, I think, arguably, you know, as least, at least in as far as like, you know, the modern, you know, modern in air quotes, jazz musicians. Yeah, I, I, I feel like he's, you know, he's the most well known. Jazz musician around the world, at least of you know of my generation. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, how did you get into Miles and 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 what was the affinity with Miles? Because um, I, I I find him to be such an a, an interesting figure, and like the more that I learn about him, just the the more that I I just find him so completely interesting. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I uh, I first heard him. Um, on some 78 recordings um, uh, because he initially when he um, moved from um, East St. Louis up to New York he was playing with Charlie Parker Mm -hmm. and a good friend of my dad's um, Gave me some records, gave me some seventy eights, um, and this fellow um, uh, was—he was married to a, a, a good friend of Grandma's, um, and his his mother, by the way, was Grandma Jackson that you hear us talk about in Pasadena. Mm, okay. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, they're from. Originally, they're from St. Louis. Okay, but he—I uh, think after Arthur got out of the service, after he got out of the Marine Corps, he moved up to Chicago, um, and he married this friend of my mother's. My mother's, um, but he saw that you know I was into jazz, and he gave me—it uh, was almost like a portfolio because they had some. Literally like binders, Mm -hmm. excuse me, binders that had cardboard sleeves or paper sleeves in them that would hold maybe six or eight, 78 RPM records. Okay, so um, he gave me this this group of, and they were on the Dial record label, Mm -hmm. um, which Parker recorded for early, early in his career, probably in the 1940s, Um, and um, I was, I was, and I just loved them. They sounded great. They really did. And see, at that time, that was probably the first records Miles Davis made. He was probably, I don't know, 19 or something. Um, But the, the, the thing that I remember... I will never forget um, is I was listening to one of these one time, and we had a um, a, a turntable, a record changer that played 78s, 78, 45, 33 and a third. And there was actually an attempt to market a 16 and a third RPM record at Mm, one time back in the 50s, but it didn't it didn't fly. Um, but anyway, I, I was listening to these 78s one time and I finished and I took it off and the cover, the binder was laying, you know, like over here on the floor Mm -hmm. and it was carpeting wall to wall carpeting. Um, and I took it off and I tossed it Mm. like that. Um, You know, because I was going to put it in the case. And as soon as it left my hand, I realized what I had done. Mm, mm -hmm. And I turned and I saw it it hit the floor. And then it split. Just shattered? No, it didn't shatter. It split like right in half. Oh, really? Which was even worse. Wow, yeah. You know, because you're thinking, well, maybe I could glue it back Mm -hmm. together. But obviously I can't. So... Because, and see, that was the big advantage with the LP when it came out. They were non-breakable. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, so that was, that was, and I mean, and those were, those were priceless, yeah. you know. But the next time I uh, became aware of Miles was, oh, through this Columbia Record Club because they had a, um, they put out uh, Roundabout Midnight. Mm-hmm. And that was the first, Well, no, it wasn't the first. I think it was actually the second recording with Coltrane, and um, uh, and that was like, I mean, you were really hip. You were really cool if you had, you know, Roundabout Midnight Mm -hmm. by Miles, Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, and um, so I was listening to him then, and um, uh, and then. After I was up at Northern, yeah. After I was when I was in college, kind of blue came out. Okay. And I mean, and that was just, you know, the icing on the right, cake. Right. Right. You know, it was uh, because it the 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 music was just so um, cerebral. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, in in fact, it was. I think it was recorded like with no rehearsals. Oh, okay. Just yeah. Completely yeah. spontaneous, you know? And, um, and you know, you were like, you know, really cool. Mm-hmm. If yes. You, if you had kind of, yes. If yes, You were listening to kind of, like, right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then the, um, uh, you know, we started hearing the, uh, the recordings on, you know, on the prestige label, mm-hmm. the other label, big label. Um, and 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 of course the and the, the the legend and the mystique of Miles was just grown right. by you know just leaps and bounds yeah. okay um, and uh, and you know and he he really he defined cool yes yes you know, absolutely no doubt about it no doubt about it uh, and he was so clean mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, everything, all his suits were tailor-made. Yes, made yes, and, they were. And, uh, uh, you know, his ties and, you know, are just beautiful, Yeah. you know. Um, and and I had an opportunity. I saw him in person probably, I don't know, half a dozen okay, times, yeah. I guess, you know, in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, at festivals and clubs. I mean, he did a, he played a festival, a fundraiser for the Urban League mm. one time at Comiskey Park. Really. Mm-hmm. The old yeah Comiskey yeah the part. old Comiskey. yeah uh-huh. um, and, um, uh huh and and I think we I think we saw him also down in San Diego mm. yeah we saw him down there at Jack Murphy okay. Stadium yeah yeah it was outside there yeah it was before Calcom sure card. yeah yeah um, but like I say uh, Miles was just he was just the epitome of mm-hmm. cool you know. Yeah.
0: yeah. And was there, was there any affinity with you being from Chicago and him being from East St. Louis? Like, was there any type of Illinois connection? Oh, yeah. or, or was East St. Louis just considered some, like, Mars, as far as you were concerned? Well,
1: no, it, it was considered Mars, yes, because... Um, well, but in a way, it wasn't, because after I went to Southern Illinois University in carbondale right yeah i i discovered that there was you know more to the state of illinois mm-hmm, than, yeah, just than just chicago yeah and see my my horizon started to expand southward also uh, when I became friends with Lamont, because he mm-hmm. was from Danville. Danville, yeah. And that's about 120 miles, 140 miles south of Chicago. Yeah, and
0: okay. and so, so the, the the listeners are aware. I mean, you know, Lamont is a, a friend of yours still to this day. Correct. You, you, yes. I, I, I feel like you two were talking on the phone yesterday. I, I feel yes, like Yes, we were, could, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I try to call him at least once a week, okay. or he'll call me. Right. Because he has some real serious health sure. problems, so sure. I like to... I like to keep in touch with yeah. him and see how he's doing and and everything. Yeah. yeah.
0: So so he he is your version of and y- you will not understand this reference, but some of the people that are listening, John Charles will understand this reference. He's 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 your version of Hank Mardukas.
1: Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's
0: it's it's from a movie,
1: but okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. But yeah. So so shout out to John yeah, Charles see, when you're listening to this okay. and Hank Mardukas.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've known Lamont since we were freshmen Mm -hmm. in in 1959. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So that's a
0: significant amount of time. Yes, yeah. So And so so he he was from a a town in southern Illinois. Yeah, kind of central. Central. Central Central
1: Illinois, because like I said, it's about 120 miles. So it's like kind of in the middle of the state. Sure. Very close to um, Champaign, Urbana. Okay, that makes sense. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Um, And so... uh, um, couple last things with Miles Davis so so what like what did you think when he started going electric like when you had uh in a silent way bitches brew a couple of those other albums because I I remember for me you know you listen to a lot of jazz so so I I knew you know I knew of Charles I I think I could recognize the name Charles Mingus like you know I would look at your LP so I would I would recognize Miles's name. I would recognize Monk and Mingus. I think Miles maybe was the one that stood out to me the most because he's the only really prominent musician, jazz musician of that period that I remember passing away like during my lifetime. Like I like oh, I remember yes. seeing something on the news about it and I even remember You asking me if um, my history teacher, Mr. Farrar, had mentioned anything about Miles Davis Uh passing away. But then I also remember when you had a copy of his autobiography because, you know, I would I would flip through it. And then the thing that always confused me was that I would see the pictures of him when he was young, you know, with with the processed hair and the the crisp suits and the skinny ties And then I would see the pictures of him when he was older with the big sunglasses and the really long hair and like the sequined jackets, you know, and it it kind of felt like young Elvis old, you know, like pre-Army Elvis, Vegas Elvis or, you know, Ed Mm -hmm. Sullivan Beatles and then Abbey Road Beatles. And I was like, wow, like, how how are these two people the same? Um, You know, but I didn't really. Listen to the music really until I got to college, you know, and all the different guys that, you know, you know, that I knew, uh, Brendan and Ken and Jameson. And so like, you know, they would play all of his stuff. And so the, the later stuff I was like, oh, well, you know, I mean, and it was, Jazz rock fusion, so yes, yes. so some of that other stuff. I was like, oh, I'm I'm in I'm really into this. Like this is fun, you know. It's got electric guitars and reverb and yeah, crazy I, drums, and then this other stuff. Like this, you know, this is old man music. Yeah. So <laughs> so uh yeah, I mean, like, how did you feel when when he went electric?
1: Yeah that that bothered me uh, okay because I I was so deeply rooted mm-hmm. uh, in the acoustic yeah uh, side of things, um, but I. I listened to in a silent way and, you know, Bitches Brew, a um, couple of the others. Uh, but I I just didn't listen to them, you know, as, as much. Right. You know, um, but um, Mom and I even saw him in person um, during that electronic period mm-hmm. at a, a, the Queen Mary Jazz Festival mm, okay. down in Long Beach. Yeah and um i think jack dejanet was playing with him and might have been a couple of drummers but um uh it was it was you know i mean particularly in person it was still mild. sure okay yeah. and uh, and i heard someone say one time that if you could play one of those electronic recordings and somehow be able to like parse out, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the, the percussion and, and chimes and other stuff, you know, it was still miles, you know, still was the same miles, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I, I I could still appreciate that part, you know? Oh, I mean, because he was, you know, he was still. A, he was always a tremendous right, musician. Right. In fact, I even saw him another time. I think I saw him up at the Hollywood Bowl. Okay. With, uh, I think with Gil Evans. Yeah, and that was, that was, um, that was nice also. That mm-hmm. was, but that was even after the yeah. electronic period. Sure. Um, but um, I think Gil. Probably um, uh, had some influence there in terms of maybe bringing him back toward the mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, although Gil Evans gravitated toward the electronic yeah. piano and synthesizers as well. Yeah, you know, uh, just the just the nature of those guys because they were they were artists, right? Yes, you know, they were they were creative. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's interesting because I think in any, any artist's, um, evolution, I think there's always some type of experimental phase that they go through, e- mm. even if it's just to like test things out, um, yes. and, uh, you know, and you know, sort of push the limits, and you know, it's the you know, part of being the artist is not doing the same thing over and over again, and you know, and right. you know, a- avoiding the the monotony you know and and i also think you know it's it's really interesting because you know there are there are certain um fans who really gravitate towards the experimental music that certain musicians do even mm-hmm. if that's the thing that they're not really like that known for or if they're not really into if they're not into it that much themselves be, you know so cuz like there there was always this um this uh the schism in the Beatles later really between John and Paul, which had always kind of been there because, you know, they were mm-hmm. both really trying to be the alphas, but really as the group started moving towards the, you know, in the mid sixties um, when they really started taking this like very, very experimental approach, yes. which produced Sergeant Pepper, which is, you know, mm-hmm. commercially, you know, it's it's the most critically lauded album. Yes. Um, and what's super interesting is that, Paul really loved Sgt. Pepper. Like he, you know, he thought it was great. It was really his idea. Paul was really the person who came up with the big concepts. John okay. never really liked Sgt. Pepper. Like, you know, he he went along with it and he did it and and one of the big songs, well, uh, yeah, two of the big songs from that from that era were songs that he wrote. One was Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, okay. And then the Great. other is A Day, which was released as a single. The other was A Day in the Life, which mm-hmm. closes out Sergeant Pepper. They're very experimental, you know, mm-hmm. just backward tape loops and symbols and all this stuff. But at his core, John Lennon was really he was really more into the Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly school of rock and roll of just like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a three minute song. Get in, get out, you know, yeah. um, but okay. but so many people like really when they think of John Lennon, they think of Strawberry Fields Forever. Yes. They think of A Day in yeah. a Life, mm-hmm. and and he actually was kind of even like annoyed by that because he used to say things like, "That's you know that's what Paul does." Like you mm-hmm. know, like even the song Yesterday, which was mm-hmm. really the first song that got people thinking of the Beatles as more than just a pop band. Mm-hmm. You know, John yeah. Lennon ha- has some quote where he says something like. You know, yes. Yesterday, it's the greatest song ever, and everyone loves it, and it's made a billion dollars. And I'm glad I I didn't write it because yeah, he just didn't want to be known by that. Oh, so wow. I so I just think it you know it's it's really really interesting. Um, yeah, just like the progression that a lot of artists do.
1: Yes, yeah, and I guess that's just that's the nature. Yeah. of of being an artist. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and and see, um, you know, there is, you know, I have. A, this this huge affinity for for Miles, um, but uh, also um, probably equally um, as large an affinity as uh, for Thelonious Monk. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and to me, uh, Monk is he is, you know, the consummate artist. Mm, yes, you know, um, I mean, he played his own music. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for a lifetime. Yeah, you know? um, although there were probably five or six standards that he loved he just recorded them over and mm-hmm. over you know um and one the one that really sticks out in my mind was a tune called sweet and lovely okay okay um he played that on the, the first record i the one i with he and Jerry Mulligan. Yeah. on it. Um and um and then he was, you know, he was playing it like on a CD recorded in Tokyo yeah. or somewhere. I mean, he just But yeah, there were um uh yeah, there were a couple of uh I mean, he even recorded T for 2. Mm, you mm-hmm. know. Um which is about as 6 simplistic as yeah. you can get. Yeah. But I mean but I mean he made it swing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um and uh um one one of the one of the, the nicest concerts that I've ever been to um was at the um New Jersey Performing Arts Center down in Homedale. Okay. It's off the Garden State Park. Gotcha. Yeah. And Mom and I, and Janice and Danny mm, mm-hmm. went down there. I think it was like a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon. I can't, I can't remember. Um, and um, we saw um, the modern jazz quartet, Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk. All on right on the yeah. same bill very nice and that was that was really um that that was really nice that was really nice but um and see Monk was um he was eccentric yes yes (laughs) to say the least (laughs) right right yeah but um but uh but I you know I think he he was a genius Mm -hmm. you know yeah as was Miles yes you know um and uh, I mean because Miles played I don't know if you've ever heard a tune called Walkin.
3: I'm not sure
1: yeah it kind of goes oh uh, yeah uh, I've yeah he played that from the 50s mm. up until he probably passed away mm-hmm. you know and he played at all sorts of varying yeah, tempos yeah. and speeds and everything, and and just and played it differently. Yeah, you know. Um, and uh, and and Coltrane said something too that always stuck with me was that, you know, every he said he could play the same tune every night and play it differently. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's and Miles was like that. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, um, so I want to thank you, Dad, for for taking the time to you know, well, not only just to come and visit us here in Philadelphia, you know, but to take time to uh you know share some some of your thoughts, your reflections, a little bit of your life story. Um, yeah, it's it's been it's been a great honor, and you know, I've uh I've definitely learned some new things about you, which uh you know I will I will always cherish uh, these. Memories, and I'm very glad that I have this recorded, so that uh, Mercer and any other living children that Naomi and I have in the future, uh, you know, they'll they'll be able to uh, to have a piece of this. So I want to thank you sincerely, and you know, I've told you many times uh, how much of a great father you are, but I definitely want to uh, get that captured here. Yeah, I mean, you're you you're my hero. You've just you've you know. Uh, I haven't always appreciated everything that you've done for me and done for Gene and Terrence, but you're—I would not be the person that I am today, and I would not be the man that I am today if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't for the the life that you modeled for us. So thank you sincerely. I I love you very much.
1: Well, thank you, thank you. I love you too, Mike. And and thank you for uh, inviting me to. Oh, uh, do this podcast. Uh, it was my first experience with you know something like this. Oh, uh, but it's been very, uh, very enjoyable. Thank you, thank you. Know, you. Uh, yeah, and and I, you know, I trust that I, you know, passed along some some good information to you and you know, absolutely some things that you know you may not have you know been aware of. Yes, before and you know, as part of my you know my background mm-hmm. and, and development um, and. Uh, I mean, I've, I've really had a, a very blessed life, yeah. um, to have the, um, uh, you know, been a part of the, you know, the family, mm-hmm. um, that, that we have around yeah. us, uh, and they are, you know, just amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I continue to, to, you know, think about them and, and think about the, um, the, the blessings that, uh. You know we've all shared you know as a family
0: yes indeed so. yes indeed before we go I have two final questions for you first question if there are three felonious Monk songs that you recommend that everyone should listen to what would be three songs by Monk
1: oh uh, f- first and foremost would be round about, uh, round midnight. I'm sorry. Round midnight. Um, the second is, uh, little Rudy tootie. Okay. Uh, which Monk wrote, um, uh, when his son T S Monk was, uh, probably a toddler. Mm, Okay. Okay. Um, and the third one, well, the third one is is tough because it's it's almost a third and a fourth. But I th- I think I would say the third one would be a very very beautiful ballad uh, titled "Ruby, My Dear." Okay. Um, but close to that, uh, uh, there's another uh, ballad that Monk wrote. Um, titled, uh, and I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, it's Crepuscule with Nellie. Okay. And Nellie is his wife. Hmm,
0: interesting. Yes. All right, I, uh, I will definitely check those out. And if there are uh, three foreign films that you recommend that everyone see, what would, what would those three films be?
1: I would say uh, a man and a woman mm-hmm. um, probably uh day for night, okay, and and I think um, Elvira Madigan,
0: okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dad. And uh, yeah, that's a wrap. So thanks for coming down to the studio. It was fantastic.
1: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.